All right. Uh, good evening, everybody. We're going to get started tonight. Um, I said last week we kind of wrapped up a little abruptly um, to finish lesson 10 on Holy Communion. Um, and I said we would start if there were any questions that anybody had. The frequently asked questions uh, How often should I receive Holy Communion? Um, see, this is the challenge, right? is we naturally want to turn every gift that God gives into some sort of law, right? So the question with Holy Communion is, well, how, not, how often do I have to take this in order to make God happy? The, the point of it is God is giving it to you for your blessing, for your benefit. And when you realize and understand what it is, the question does not become how often do I have to, but how often do I get to, right? How often can I partake of this? And the answer is it's always available. Um, so that would also be the answer to number three. If you're not able to attend church, and I think this is something I probably don't make uh, remind people of enough, but, but Holy Communion, much like private confession and absolution that we'll talk about tonight, is always available, right? Holy Communion is always available. Um, the individual cup versus the large common cup, a um, lot of, uh, I think, misconceptions um, about that. Um, if you kind of look back on the, uh, the background of the individual cups, um, they really became kind of a big thing in America during the AIDS scare in the 80s. Um, so, which now, of course, we know you can't even transmit that disease that way. Um, COVID, I'm sure, kind of re-sparked that fear that people have. Um, but here's the thing when it comes to Holy Communion. And we can, we can go through all the scientific evidence and, you know, that it's alcohol, that it's metal, which is a poor conductor of germs, that the cup is wiped down. That's, that studies have shown that st statistically speaking, you are already at your highest, highest risk of getting a cold simply by walking into the same room as people. Drinking from the same cup does not elevate that risk, right? But most importantly, right, is to remind ourselves and ask ourselves, what is this? Right. This is the true blood of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, poured out for me for the forgiveness of sins. Um, so, you know, again, I'm not going to say that it's a that it's an impossibility, but I think this fear of, you know, what harm could come to me um, if I if I drink from the common cup, I think that's something that um, people can set aside. So. When I grew up, the common cup was just handed down the aisle, and then it came back. Yeah. And maybe occasionally someone would wipe it, but uh, right. I don't remember much sure. of that at all. No. Life right. went on. No yeah, life went on. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. So that's just kind of a brief uh, look at those frequently asked questions. Um, is If there's nothing else, we're going to move on to lesson 11. Tonight, you see it up on the screen, announcing and applying grace. I like this introduction. When you hear the word confession, what comes to mind? I think it's probably one of two things. 
if you grew up as a not very religious person, then confession is probably something you associate with like cop shows, right? When they, they put the, uh, the person arrested under the spotlight, right? And you try and sweat them out to get the confession, right? Um, or if you did grow up in, in the church in, in, uh, with a religious background, you probably have some sort of a grasp of the confessional booth right, uh, which is the, the picture on the screen. Either way, I think most people would probably say um, confession is not something that they like, that they look forward to, that they would ever want to participate in. Um, it seems scary and intimidating. And why in all the world would I want to admit my deep, dark secrets to somebody else, right? And, and I think here's kind of the point, right? And this is what we're going to look at in this lesson is when it comes to confession as Lutherans. And when I say Lutheran, I mean, this is what the Bible teaches. The emphasis is not so much on the confession, but on what comes after the confession. Why confess our sins? It's not just to get it out. Um, it's to be spoken the word of peace and forgiveness and freedom and absolution that comes to those who do confess, right? Um, and so, whereas most people would look at it and say, well, how would you describe confession? It would just be simply admitting uh, a fault, admitting a wrongdoing, admitting a failure. What we're going to see tonight is, and I love this uh, in the small catechism, Martin Luther makes it very clear that confession has two parts, right? Um, yes, it is to confess your sins, but it is also then to hear the words of what we call absolution, to hear the words of forgiveness. And that is the point and purpose of confession, okay? I think that is very unique in, in, um, in our perspective of confession right? And so when we talk about why we value confession so highly, um, it's going to be for different reasons than other religions, other Christians even, um, who talk about confession. So here is our lesson goal. In the last few lessons, we have studied the many different ways that God uses uh, to communicate his forgiveness to us in his word, in baptism, and in holy communion. As we study confession and absolution in this lesson, we want to see that those terms, uh, what those terms specifically mean. You will learn that God personally assures us that our sins are forgiven through absolution, the announcement and application of the gospel to us through pastors and other fellow Christians. And if you remember, I kind of mentioned, um, it, I think it was in our lesson on baptism, when we kind of lay out um, some of the... Uh, uh, the criteria for a sacrament, and we talked about how uh, for a long time, you know, most Christians, Lutherans in particular, viewed baptism, communion, and absolution, confession and absolution, as kind of the three sacraments. For example, Luther always talked about them um, as kind of the three sacraments. Um, and I know that uh, Christy, for example, is always kind of looking for like a symbol of what it would be. So if baptism you know you've got the shell or you've got the baptismal font or you've got water or the dove there's a lot of options for baptism 
Holy Communion, you've got the chalice, um, you know, you've got uh, sometimes like a, a cup and a loaf of bread. Um, you, you know, there's, there's various things that you can use. I don't know why, Christy, I never thought of this, but um, the one, the, the symbol for the absolution, and we'll get, at, we'll get to it later in the lesson, is, is just a, a set of keys, right? And we'll talk about why, but this is the portion, if you're wondering, well, why in the small catechism is there a section on baptism and a section on Holy Communion, but not a section on confession and absolution? Um, if that's the third sacrament, there is. Um, in the small catechism, one of the six parts is the ministry of the keys, or the keys of confession and absolution. And why we call them the keys is because this is what Jesus calls them. He says, I give to you the keys, right? Um, to lock and unlock, to loosen and to, to, to bind. Um, and so we'll talk about what that means. But uh, just before I forgot that, that's kind of the symbol, I think, that, uh, that would commonly be used for that. So... All right, let's get into then um, the first story that we are going to look at when it comes to confession and absolution. That's Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. This is the uh, commonly known as the parable of the unmerciful servant. little introduction in your notes there. This is um, Jesus' famous parable of the unmerciful servant. The parable teaches us truths about God's generous grace toward us, and with a negative example, shows us how Christians who have been forgiven by God will want to extend Christ's forgiveness to others. All right, Matthew 18, uh, starting with verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demand demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In his anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. All right. One of those uh, rare parables that doesn't really have a good ending, right? Um, kind of told in reverse. Normally we see kind of like the failure, right? And then the success 
uh, we're convicted with the law, then we're comforted with the gospel. This one is done in reverse, right? Um, let's take a look at it. Uh, notice the initial question that led into Jesus' parable, right? Peter asks a wonderful question, an important question. Um, he asks Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Um, and the reason for this is, is because the Pharisees had this rule, right? There were a certain number, a set number of times you were required to forgive people, and then you were not required to do it anymore. Um, and Peter went above and beyond what the Pharisees had set. And so Peter here thinks he's being pretty generous. And when you think about it, if you have a friend or a family member and you think about somebody who has like come to you and, and done something to hurt you, seven times is a lot of times to specifically forgive someone. It is pretty generous. Um, and, I, and I don't mean like the little things like, you know, um, you know, I, you know, your kids, right, talking back to you or, um, you know, um, maybe a, a friend, you know, uh, forgetting a, a lunch that you were supposed to go to. I mean, something that like deeply hurts you, right, where somebody kind of almost vindictively does something to cut you down. For somebody to do something like that seven times, I, I, I don't know that many of us would keep people in our lives that long. Um, and so again, I, Peter here in his mind is being very generous. He's being practical. He's trying to figure out, look, I understand this whole, the grace of your kingdom, Jesus. I understand that, but there has to be a point, right? Everybody has their, their limit. There has to come a point where you draw that line. And so Peter offers one. He says, how about this? And of course, Jesus blows that out of the water, Right. Um, not seven times, but 77 times. Um, other other uh, portions um, uh, or other translations have 70 times seven. The, the point is not, is it 77 or is it 490 or whatever that would be. The, the point of it is to simply say um, that Jesus says, you don't stop, right? Um, and, and to illustrate that, Jesus tells this story. Um, what the man, the servant, owed the king, if you would kind of break down in this day and time, you know, how much was a, a day's wage was a denarius, right? And what did he owe? 10,000 talents. Um, you kind of do the math. And what this servant owed the king would have cost him 1,800 years worth of salary to pay back. So in other words, it's not happening. Certainly not on a servant's salary. Um, and that's kind of the point. And you have to be just kind of a little shocked, don't you? When it, it doesn't even take much. There's not a whole lot of convincing. I think the initial judgment of the king is right. It's fair. It's good. Throw him in jail. 1800. How does somebody accumulate that much debt? probably the king would have been like, whoever's in charge of my books needs to be fired. Who kept giving this guy money? Um, this, is, this is unpayable. Throw this guy in jail. And not just him, his wife, his family. There, there's, there's a whole picture there, isn't there? Of, of what our sin does, right? It doesn't just indebt us. 
Um, it drags our family down with us. It affects all of those people around us. Um, and so, and, and what does the man do? The servant, just one simple sentence, please be patient and I'll pay back what I owe you. So not only is he in this massive amount of debt, but then he lies to the king's face. I mean, he had to know there's no possible way I'm paying this back. And the king had to know that too. And what does he do? Um, he has pity on him, canceled the debt and let him go. Not a payment plan, not a let's come to some sort of like, you know, you see those commercials on TV where people are like $30,000, $40,000 in back taxes they owe. Call this number and we'll, you know, we'll get your, 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 your IRS debt cut in half. Um, there's none of that. It's just canceled. Based on what? The man said, have pity on me. And the king did. 1,800 years worth of debt gone. And, and, and then what happens, right? He goes out, he finds his fellow servant. And it's amazing the way that Jesus tells the story. It's almost like he walks out of the king's palace and it's the first guy that he sees, right? He's just there. And, and how someone in his position could immediately forget what has just happened to him um, is, is, I think, even more shocking than the king forgiving the debt. That's kind of the point when you read the story is to go, how could this guy? And of course, this is why the king gets so enraged. This is his point, right? Um, how should you not have had mercy the way that I had mercy on you? How could you forget what I had forgiven for you? And of course, this is the point, right? Now, there's a couple of things here, I think, when it comes to this story. Number one, um, the point of the story, I don't think, is what so many people make of it. And, and I, it's just a weird way to look at it. Yes, Jesus has obviously forgiven us an infinitely amount more of sins than any one person could ever commit against us. Because every sin we commit in our lives, thought, words, actions, all of them spit in the face of Jesus. Not all of them hurt my wife. Some of them hurt my kids. Some of them hurt my congregation. Some of them hurt my friends. But all of them hurt Jesus. And, and the other thing that, that, that this parable is not trying to say is that when people sin against you, it's no big deal. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Um, uh, the, roughly the equivalent of the debt, um, what is it, a, a couple hundred denarii, a um, hundred, uh, roughly would have been about three months wages, right? Figure a denarius was a day's wage, right? Um, so about three, three and a half months um, wages. That's a quarter of your salary. Uh, imagine uh, losing that tomorrow, right? A quarter of your yearly salary. That's a big deal. Jesus is not saying, look, when people sin against you, just brush it off. It's not like it's as bad as what you've done to me. No, the point of this is to simply say, how in all the world could we ever forgive someone? Not just when someone sins against us, but when someone sins against us 77 
times. And the point of this is not to say, well, buck up, because the debt they owe you is really not that big of a deal compared to what you owed me. The point of it is to say, where in all the world are you going to get your ability, your reason, your strength, your comfort, your confidence, your encouragement, your ability, your willingness, your joy to actually forgive someone like that? Jesus says, you're only going to find that by returning to the grace already given you in Christ. I don't know how many times people have said that to me um, in, in my ministry. You've heard it too. People say it all the time. I just don't think I'll ever be able to forgive that person. And when you are not a Christian, when you're living and functioning out in the secular world, you're probably right. I don't think you ever will. Because you really have no reason to. Um, there's really no motivation. There's really no benefit to you other than there is the kind of psychological aspect of it, right? That forgiving someone is actually freeing for you. It's, it's not allowing them to kind of, you know, control your thoughts and your emotions and all of those kinds of, there, there is that. Um, but, but the reality is I, I have no reason to. Um, in the secular world, what do we see today? Um, we, we live in, in, you know, cancel culture. Um, and we live in a day and age now where people are losing their jobs, losing their careers, losing their reputations over something they did 40 years ago. Now, I'm not saying that just because it was 40 years ago, you shouldn't be held accountable. But we've turned not forgiving people into our virtue. The way that we show we are virtuous people is by crushing the guilty party. And so what does that become? What, what is the world in which we live now? It is literally eating itself. It's a race to figure out who can cancel who next. Who can dig up dirt on this person and, and, and so that they can be out of the way. And, and, and I say this for a lot of things, but I'll say it again. I think this is another opportunity that we have as Christians in this postmodern culture when everybody has canceled each other and there's no one left. Because guess what happens eventually? <laughs> the last person standing, standing who has canceled everybody, they'll, get, they'll be canceled too. Um, this world is longing, and it doesn't even realize it. It is longing for forgiveness. It's longing for compassion. Um, and no one is willing to give it these days. So why don't we? And if anybody should know how to do this, it should be us. Because this is the whole reason why we exist. It's the whole reason why we are Christians. It's the whole reason why we are not servants locked up in a prison cell being tortured for our sins and our past failures and mistakes because the king has canceled our debt and set us free. And what do you do with that freedom? You seek and you search for others to set free. 
And the constant comeback I always get is, well, yeah, but then that just means that people are going to take advantage of me and people are going to walk all over me. And it just tells people that it's okay, that they're, that they're, that they're, they're okay to do it again. And the point of this is, again, go back to the cross. Go back to the empty tomb. Go back every single Sunday that we gather here in God's house. And what do we say? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We don't even make the promise that we'll pay back everything we owe him. Because we know we never could. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what is Jesus' immediate reply through the mouth of your pastor? It's not, I will, so long as you guys promise that you are going to forgive everybody perfectly too. No. It's just canceled. You're simply set free. And in that freedom, in that cancellation, you know what it is to receive grace. You know what it is to live in the peace and the freedom of the gospel. Um, and to live in that is not only to receive forgiveness, but to give it as freely as it was given to you. Um, and does that mean that people might take advantage of you? Does that mean that people might walk all over you? Does that mean that people might feel like they can do it again? Sure. And guess what the Lord Jesus calls you to do when they do? Forgive him again. Just like when you come back to him, when you return to the foot of the cross, there's Jesus, arms outstretched, tears rolling down his face, welcoming you, his lost and prodigal child, back, ready to kill the fattened calf for you. This is another one of those examples when I was just reading, uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, like, um, just saw this quote this week, which is a great quote. I, I'm going to butcher it, but you'll get the idea. He said something like, um, you know, I, I didn't become a Christian because I wanted I thought it would make my life easier. Anybody who, who thinks that religion will make your life easier, don't become a Christian. <laughs> um, because when we talk about this, when we talk about the, 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 how forgiveness is a part of the Christian life, we're not just talking about, I have no life apart from the forgiveness of Christ. I have no freedom apart from the king canceling my debt and setting me free. But it's also now I live in that freedom, meaning I have no reason. I have no argument against not doing the same for others. Okay. Um, and that's hard. That's really hard to do. Um, if you go back all the way to our very first lesson, we talked about kind of why this was difficult. Remember at the end of the lesson, uh, the question was, well, why couldn't God just forgive? Right? Did Jesus really have to die? Was that necessary? And the point of this is to say, this is the way forgiveness works, right? A debt has been incurred. And now it has to be dealt with. And if you're the sinner and I'm the one who's been sinned against and there's this debt between us, one of us has to deal with it. Either God says, 
pay me back everything you I'm putting you in jail and you're going to work. You're going to be there until you pay me back everything you owe me. That's you dealing with the debt. That's you trying to be saved by means of the law. Do this and you will live. But forgiveness is God saying, okay, you're in debt with me because you already robbed me. You already stole something from me. You already injured me. Whether it was you robbed my glory by giving it to another, or you, you robbed me of my name by, by using it to curse, or, um, or you, you robbed my reputation um, by, by, by living a sinful life and claiming to be a Christian. Whatever this sin is, you stole something from God to begin with. Forgiveness is now saying, I'm not going to force you, the sinner, the guilty party, the one who made the debt, I'm not going to make you repay it. But I'm actually going to absorb that payment myself. Forgiveness is having to pay the debt twice. You suffer the first loss, and then you suffer your ability to demand repayment. That's why forgiveness is so hard. That's why it cost the life of God's only son. Because the wages of sin is death. And so God says, it's either going to be your death or it's going to be my death. That's going to deal with this debt. And God would not have the sinner die. So he sends his only son. So if you think for a, a moment, and maybe there's this temptation, that because God is so loving, that to forgive is easy for him. Think again. Um, forgiveness cost him the life of his only son. There is no greater payment that could ever have been made. Forgiveness is not cheap. You hear people talk about this cheap grace, cheap forgiveness to just, to just forgive everybody, to just walk around forgiving people. You don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the cost of my forgiveness. There is nothing cheap about grace. There is nothing cheap about forgiveness. And people know that, which is why they're not quick to give it. And so the Lord ends here, not with a promise of gospel, but with a promise of the law, with a promise of judgment and condemnation. A refusal to forgive um, is a willful rejection of the forgiveness given in Christ. That's a serious deal, right? Uh, much like with everything else God gives us in his law, it's not do your best. It's do this or else. And so I hear that threat, and what do I do? I go running back to the king. They say, Lord, I have not forgiven the way you have forgiven me. Have mercy on me. And he does. And he will. And, and this is, and Peter just mentioned it before, that this absolution is kind of the, the reliving of your baptism, which is exactly what, what Luther says in the small catechism when it comes to, to um, you know, the what is... What is the, the power or the strength given in baptism? And it's this, right? Um, it is this daily drowning of my sinful nature in, in, in contrition and repentance, right? It's acknowledging that I have the power to drown my sinful nature day after day after day. Why? 
because this promise of absolution has already been given to me in Christ. Okay. Thoughts on the unmerciful servant. All right. Yes. The unmerciful servant is talking about the things that he has done when it comes to him asking for mercy. Yes. What's the question? I was thinking of absolution as a minute when you tell you all stuff is not there. But this seems to be saying that he's talking about telling people to him. He's not forgiving. Yes. But but this is the point Jesus is making. We have to love. Well, yes, but but here's the point that Jesus is making. Guess what? One of the terrible things you and I do is we don't forgive. Right? That that's one of those that's one of those um, those very easy justifiable sins that we as human beings come up with, right? Um, and and here's the point: Jesus says you have no excuse, you have no wiggle room with this. There is no category of sin, no sin so great, no amount so heavy that you would go, well, Lord, I was ready to forgive, but the person hit 78, and that was it. And Jesus will go, oh, okay, all right, I must have miscounted. I thought it was only 77. No, the point of it is to say, the, the, the refusal to forgive only now adds to the man's debt. And, and the king says, I had just forgiven your debt. And now you're going to already go out and add to it again. And, and, and this is what we do. We, we come here on Sunday morning. We confess our sins. We receive the words of absolution. We're reminded of our baptism. We receive the forgiveness in the body and blood of Jesus. Um, and what do we do? I, I don't know. Maybe you make it five minutes. Maybe you make it out to your car. Um, maybe you, you make it down the road. Um, but sin is always crouching at your door. Right? Um, and so the point of it is not to say, keep confessing, keep receiving absolution, and hopefully you'll do that more times than you sin. And then you'll be back kind of at zero with a clean slate, you know, and then you'll be good to go. No, the point of it is grace encompasses grace. Forgiveness is for all sins, past, present, future. But the encouragement here for Jesus is to recognize now that this grace that he gives is not grace that he simply wants to end with you, right? Um, that really the failure of this servant is not just his unwillingness to forgive, but it starts even before that when he fails to realize just how big of a debt he had. And so it's easy for me to look at when someone sins against me and go, I mean, that's, that's, 
deal breaker. Our relationship's over. I'm never dealing with that person again. That's unforgivable. How could they do that to me? And, and then when I look at my relationship with Jesus and I go, well, I mean, it was just a little pet peeve sin. It was just, I didn't mean anything by it. It wasn't that big of a deal. Um, I promise I'll never do it again, right? We, it's, it's very easy to justify our own sins and hold those of others against them. Um, and so I think this is, yeah, kind of the point, right? I mean, this is, the, this is what we say in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our, our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And, and I think what's always interesting is when you look at that, uh, at those two phrases, notice how um, it is described. Forgive us our sins, not if we forgive, not um, for, forgive us our sins when we forgive those who sin against us. There's, there's no like, it's hanging in the balance and we're not really sure how this is going to play out. There, there's an assumption made there. Forgive us our sins as we do the very same thing for others, because this is what Christians do. This is what the power of Christ, the resurrected Lord Jesus living in my heart, in my life will do. And I can't do that, Lord, without your forgiveness. I can't forgive others without your forgiveness. So forgive me, Lord, for my unwilling to forgive others. You ever prayed that prayer? Forgive me, Lord, for my inability to forgive, right? Um, that, that probably should be a pretty regular prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, it is, right? Um, to deliver us from evil, to lead us not into temptation, to forgive us our sins. That's so why all of those are praying, right? Yeah, so hear the word of absolution for your unwillingness to forgive. You are forgiven for your lack of forgiveness. Now go forgive. And when you can't, come back and confess and hear the words of absolution again. You are forgiven for your unwillingness to forgive. Right? Um, the life of the Christian, right? It's the ebb and flow. Why confess? Right? Um, there's some other helpful passages there. And this is kind of what I was talking about in the introduction. Psalm 32 is one of the penitential psalms, uh, one of my favorites. Um, King David writes this. He says, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is the point of confession. And you know this, I know this, we all know this because we've all tried it. We've all tried to bury and hide and keep hidden our, our deep, dark secrets, hoping that if we just keep them buried long enough, they'll go away. But what do they do? They destroy us from the inside out. They eat away at us. They gnaw at us. And, and, and these are all the ways that, that, that David is describing it. My bones wasted away. 
Uh, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Um, it felt like the, the hand of God himself was slowly just crushing me like a bug. And as David is just moments away from being obliterated, what does he say? This is the prodigal son. What am I doing? What am I doing longing for the slop that the pigs eat? My father's servants have a better life than this. I'll go back and I'll confess to him. I'll ask for his forgiveness and, and he will give me the very bare minimum. I know it. But our God is even greater. And so was the father. The son runs back. If I don't deserve to be called your son, stand up, get up on your feet, put the best robe on him, put the ring on his finger, finger put sandals on his feet, kill the fattened calf. Let's have a party, right? It's over and above. David says, then I acknowledge my sin to you. It's like he came to his senses. Why am I trying to hide this from the God who already knows? And I did not cover up my sin, my, sin, uh, my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Why confess your sins? Because it's what sets your soul free. It is what removes your guilt. It is what actually allows you to live a life of freedom and peace and comfort and joy. And God already knows you did it anyway. Um, so what is it to say it to him? What is it to confess? What is it to admit what he already knows? James 5. Uh, James writes this, he's referring to, you know, how Christians interact with each other. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Um, I'm constantly telling this to married couples. Um, you know, you, if, you, if you were to ask a uh, hundred couples, you know, um, what is the most important quality of a marriage? Um, if, you've ever, if you've ever been to a wedding reception where the DJ like takes the microphone around and like gives some words of wisdom to the couple, the dumbest thing. I hate it when they do that because you get the dumbest responses. Um, but you know, they'll say things like, well, good communication or compromise, right? You got to meet in the middle, which is the absolute worst advice you could ever give a married couple. Um, no, what is the number one quality that is needed, that is necessary for a marriage to survive? Not only survive, to, but, but to thrive. It's forgiveness. And I love telling this to, to, to engaged couples before they get married. And I say, look at the person sitting next to you. There is no one in your entire life who will ever sin against you more than that person. And they're shocked. Like, no, no, we're so in love. We're never going to sin against each other. And it's like, no, you're not going to sin against your spouse because you hate them. At least I hope not. You're going to sin against them because it's convenient. Because you're a sinful person and they're the closest target. Right? Um, and so here's what I'm constantly encouraging couples to do is to practice this in your marriage. When was the last time you sat down and you did an absolution? Don't just tell your spouse, I'm sorry. I'm sorry is what kids say when they get caught with their hand in the cookie jar. Christians say, forgive me. Have mercy on me. Um, confess your sins, and if you have sinned, you will be forgiven. And this is the joy of a Christian marriage. It is to have someone 
who is bound to forgive you. Okay. <clears throat> Proverbs 28, he who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. David found that out, right? Sure, he passed that wisdom down to his son, Solomon, who writes these words. Solomon had a couple sins of his own, I think. All right, now we're going to specifically get into the absolution. When we talk about the, the word absolution, it comes from the Latin word um, to absolve. And to absolve is to take something away, to remove something. Um, here it is. I take it and I carry it far away and it's out of sight. It's gone, right? So the absolution is to the removal of sins, the removal of guilt. It's someone coming to you and saying, I'll take those um, and removing them from you. Um, and here is where we get it. John chapter 20. This is Easter Sunday night. Jesus comes and he appears before his disciples, even though they're locking, uh, hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. Um, and he comes before them. He breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he says this. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Um, probably the two greatest uh i don't want to say attacks that's the wrong word but uh maybe two greatest sources of anger that that people who are visiting our church on sunday morning have for me after the service that i've heard in 13 14 years of of ministry number one is closed communion we talked about that last week the second one is this um it is the words of absolution who are you to forgive sins. Only Jesus can forgive sins. When I stand in front of the congregation and speak the words of absolution, I say, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who in the world do you think you are? You're not Jesus. Um, and so my answer to that question is usually twofold. Number one, who am I? I'm no one. I really am. I promise you. The more you get to know me, you'll agree. I'm nobody. However, in this place, in this congregation, at this time, I am the one that the Lord of the church is called to speak those very words. And when people want to say, well, it's okay if you say your sins are forgiven, but you can't go around saying to people, I forgive your sins. But look at the words Jesus speaks. He doesn't just say, go around and tell everybody that their sins are forgiven. He says, if you forgive them their sins, they are forgiven. And what does they are forgiven mean? What is Jesus saying when he says, if you forgive them, they're forgiven? Jesus is saying what? I forgive them. If if, if they're forgiven and Jesus is the one saying that, then Jesus is saying, I'll back you up. I'm, I'm in your corner. If you forgive them, I forgive them. Right? So I, I, this is not an arrogant thing that I'm doing on Sunday morning. I'm not trying to puff myself up by saying, I get to walk around saying, I forgive you. Um, it is simply, we are simply taking the very words 
that Jesus himself says, disciples, go. And just as he says, baptize, I've never heard a Christian um, argue against, well, who baptized you? Well, Pastor Rob. Well, no, only Jesus can baptize. Well, no, why? Because he told his disciples, go and make disciples by baptizing. So why is it different with absolution? Because again, I would say that there's this breakdown in kind of what a sacrament is. Sacrifice versus sacrament, right? We, we, simply, we simply can't have a human being who is a nobody stand in front of me in the place of Jesus Christ and tell me that he is forgiving my sins. Only Jesus can do that. Baptism can't forgive sins. Only Jesus can do that. Holy communion can't forgive sins. Only Jesus can do that. But what if Jesus said, these are the ways through which I'm distributing the very forgiveness I won for you on the cross. And so we speak the words that Jesus tells us to speak. If you forgive them, they are forgiven. I forgive you. You are forgiven. Okay. Yeah, again, I, I think it's that it's that misunderstanding of the means of grace, right? It's a misunderstanding of of the, the, the sacrament, that it is God's sacred gift to us, that God works through means, that God distributes his means, he distributes the forgiveness of sins through means, through water, through word, through bread and wine, through, through a pastor, right? Um, people, most Christians, I would say, when I say most Christians, I, I, I mean like everybody outside of probably orthodox roman catholic lutheran like think protestant christian almost all of them view god's connection and communication to people as being an immediate thing right god spoke to me and said right god gave me this sign and told me it, 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 it's always this, it can't be through word, it can't be through bread and wine, it can't be through water, it can't be through pastor, um, that is that, you know, for whatever reason, but, but they want it to be this immediate thing, which is so weird, because it still is a means, there's, there's something there usually, right, even if it's just a sign, or if it's a friend, who, you know, I had a conversation with, and that was my sign to go and take this job or whatever it is. Um, they still acknowledge that, but they prefer, they prefer that God deal with them immediately. And I don't mean quickly. I don't mean time. I mean, without a means of communication. Um, and this is really all kind of part of the charismatic movement, right? Um, that, that uh, you know, the, the Holy Spirit works where and when he wills. And so it kind of is just up to the individual to figure out when and where that is. 
instead of bound, instead of binding and limiting God to the places where he has bound and limited himself. Jesus says, you want to know what I think of you? Go look in the water of your baptism. You want to know what I think about you? Go into the, the living words of scripture. You want to know what I think about you? Kneel at my table and receive body and blood for forgiveness of sins. You want to know what I think of you? Listen to the guy up front holding his hands up, standing as my ambassador, as my, as my mouthpiece in that time and in that place, and listen to what he says. Right? They want it to be, you know, it's like these things are too easy. They're too lowly. They're too earthly. Um, this immediate way, this I saw, you know, my eyes were open and, you know, whatever it might be. It just, it's, God's got to be bigger than water, bread and wine, pastor, right? And it's like, did you actually read the gospels? Jesus loves to work through holy or lowly things. Look how he was born. Like, look how he performs his miracles. I mean, he picks up dirt and he spits and he makes mud and he wipes it on the guy he's all about the earthly he's all about the lowly um so that's why i have no problem admitting to people i'm no one but here at this place in this time i've been given a really big responsibility um and a, and a privilege to speak the words that Jesus himself on the night of his resurrection told Christians to speak to repentant sinners. So we do. Yeah. 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 Um, Matthew 15. Oh, we, we, uh, I got him out of order in the note. Sorry. Um, let's go to the next one first. There are the keys. Um, oh, did I not put that one in there? Maybe I didn't. In your notes there, Matthew 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Uh, Matthew 18, here's where we get the keys. Um, oh, I've got, did I just, there. Actually, it should be Matthew 18, sorry, on the page. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as he would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Right? There is that locking and unlocking key. Now, there's a lot there to unpack. Number one, I get really kind of... I don't know what the right word is, cautious, hesitant, leery. Um, when churches want to follow this Matthew 18 as like a three-step um, plan. Um, well, uh, so-and-so sinned against me, Pastor. I went and talked to them. They're, they're not going to repent. I need to take someone else and then go with me, and then we'll tell the church, and then we'll be done with it. And the point here of, of what Jesus is saying is not one, two, three steps, and then you're done. Three strikes and you're out. That's not, that's not the point. What is Jesus saying? Um, Jesus is saying, go win back your brother. Until it becomes abundantly clear that he will not be won back. And then you treat him like a pagan or a tax collector. Now, that's interesting. 
how does Jesus treat the pagans and the tax collectors? Hey, he loves them, right? Um, he treats them better than the religious people because the pagan and the tax collectors are in need of and longing for that mercy. So I would say even then, even then, you don't give up on winning back your brother or your sister, your fellow believer, right? Um, yeah, I just, I've, I've heard so many people saying, well, you know, we follow the steps of Matthew 18 and it's like, you're not done. You're not done, right? Keep going, keep going until, until, you know, they make it abundantly clear. And, and there've been times, you know, where I've lost contact with people, they vanished, they moved, they changed the number, whatever it is. And there's, there's no way to, I, okay, whatever, fine. But until you can't keep going keep going, right? They're worth it. The angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. That's all it takes. Not a whole community, not a whole nation, not a whole church, not a thousand, just one, just one. And there's a party in heaven. It's worth it. Right? So don't give up. Totally. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. The approach does change. Um, and, and I would say the goal necessarily doesn't change, but the approach is, I would say at first, it kind of is that soft, like, look, maybe you weren't aware you said this, you did this, you hurt this person, you hurt me. I want to make you aware of it. But then as that kind of hardness and that rejection lingers, then you do, you have to get to the point. And this is what, what Jesus concludes with whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And I've had to tell people, look, um, you know, whether it's excommunication or it's church discipline or it's acknowledging that someone is living in a state of impenitence, that is telling someone, if you were to die today, you will not be in heaven. You, you are being bound to your sin, which means you are not bound to Christ. And the reply is, well, pastor, that, that's what you think, right? I'll take it up with Jesus. I'll take my chance. He knows my heart. He knows my whatever. Um, that's just your word. No, it's not. Whatever you bind on earth, I'm not saying this because I don't like you. I'm not saying this because I want to get rid of you. I'm saying this because it's abundantly clear to me that you would rather be married to this sin than you would be to your bridegroom. And here's what that means. I'm bound to tell you that. So, so don't try and think that this is, we had a family, this a number, a bunch of years ago, um, you know, their, their son got into some, some, uh, some sin and, um, the parents, you know, came back and I was dealing with the young man and loved him and still do to this day and still keep in touch with him from time to time. Um, but their, their parents came back and basically said, well, you know, we're going to leave the church because we don't want to be a part of a church that is, you know, going to, uh, basically judge our son and not, not accept our son. And I finally just had to say, you know what? Your problem is not with the church. Your problem is not with me. You, you show to me in scripture what the church, what your pastor has said or done that is out of line with scripture, and I will repent. Your problem is with the word of God. Your problem is with God himself. And so here it is, right? Um, it, it can sound so virtuous to, to blame the church 
um, and make it easier to walk. You're not walking away from a church. You're walking away from your Savior. So when people look at this sometimes, they fear. Well, I've had people that I've sinned against. And I went to them and I asked for their forgiveness and they wouldn't forgive me. So does this mean if they don't forgive me that Jesus doesn't forgive me? No. No. This is when you go back to the previous passages. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you've, he forgave the, the guilt of my sin. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Um, the point of this is where there is repentance, where there is confession, there is forgiveness. Now, if you sin against me and I tell you to go take a hike, now I've got my own sin that I need to deal with, right? And that's kind of the sad thing that I think, um, you know, when it comes to withholding forgiveness from people, especially as Christians, is, and this is kind of my point, Mitzi, to your question earlier with the unmerciful servant, right? Um, he's back in debt. He just had all that debt for, now he's back in debt, right? Um, and this is kind of the point. So you're indebted to me because you sin against me. You come and ask for my forgiveness. And I say, no, your debt is forgiven. And I hope if I'm not going to give that to you, then find someone who will. And I would say, you know, more times than not, my encouragement would be come to your pastor. Find your pastor and say, pastor, I, I sinned against my best friend. I went and told her what I did. I asked for forgiveness. She said she didn't want to be friends anymore. Um, I will offer you absolution on the spot, right? Um, I'm not going to guarantee you that your friendship is going to be, you know, reconcilable, but I want you to go home in the comfort and peace of forgiveness. It's not as though Jesus just says, hey, people, whatever you decide to do with sins, I I'm going to stick with it. When Jesus says, if whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, he's talking about that which is bound by the individual sinner himself. I'm the only one who can bind myself in sin by my refusal to repent. Just like I'm the only one who can excommunicate myself from my church, not my pastor, not, my, not the voters assembly. Um, I'm the only one who can excommunicate myself, right? When I, when I acknowledge by my confession or my lack of confession, that I am outside the communion of fellowship. I am excommunicating myself. It's the pastor's job and the church's job to acknowledge it. But it's not as though I go, all right, well, sorry, you're out of here because I just don't want to put up with you anymore. No. Um, so whatever you bind on earth, the point of that is when Jesus is saying, the only time you bind something is where there is a rejection of repentance, a rejection of grace. And when you bind that, it is bound in heaven. It's not Pastor Bader's word versus the person. Um, and, and so the same authority then comes. Whatever you loose, whatever you unlock, whatever you open, whatever you set free, whatever you forgive on earth will be forgiven in heaven. And, and what do we forgive? Everywhere there is repentance and confession. Right? Um. Yeah, so here is the, the actual keys line um, that Jesus talks about. Matthew 16, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is the picture of absolution. It is unlocking heaven to someone. Or 
it is locking heaven to someone. Right? That's a big deal. That's something that we ought not uh, be trite with. Okay. Um, practice, practiced in real life. Um, if we set aside the outdated image of confession that we imagine at the start of this lesson and look at the basic meaning behind the preceding Bible verses, it becomes clear that confessing our sins and receiving God's forgiveness is simply a regular way of life for the Christian. It happens daily among parents and children, husbands and wives, friends and family. Confession and absolution takes place formally or informally in our families, among our Christians, uh, Christian friends, or with our pastor. And, and on page 81, I include there um, uh, what I use for individual confession and absolution. And again, just kind of like, you know, private communion, things like that, I should probably make this more known um, that this is available to people and actually teach people what it's like. And so this is usually the place where I, I do it is in Bible information class. What is the point and the purpose of this? The point and the purpose of this is sometimes um, there are issues, there are sins, there is deep-seated guilt that for some reason um, people just cannot shake. Um, I, I'm, I'm here every Sunday, Pastor. I hear the general absolution that you give, um, and I it's wonderful, and I appreciate it, but I, for whatever reason, it just I don't think it's for me. Not for that sin, at least. It's just too deep. It was just too big. It was just too hurtful. It was too impactful. Um, and, and so what is the, the benefit of private or personal confession and absolution? I would say it's the same benefit of Holy Communion. There's no escaping it. There, there's, 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 there's the ability to, to, to duck and dive and dodge absolution on Sunday morning, right? It's for everyone else, it's not for me. You, you can't dodge Holy Communion. As I, as I said, this is why I, I say the words differently than what I grew up hearing. But I say to every single person who receives communion, the body of Christ given for you. Because I want you to hear those words that it is for you. Uh, the blood of Christ shed for you. Um, and so it is with private confession and absolution. You are coming to hear the words of absolution for you. For that sin. Yes, even that sin is nailed to the cross for you. So um, when people ask for individual confession and absolution, I set out this sheet of paper, um, give them time. If they want to read some of the penitential Psalms, they're listed there. Um, the, the second sentence there says, if you are not burdened with a particular sin, um, do not trouble yourself or search for or invent other sins, thereby uh, turning confession into torture. Instead, mention one or two sins that you know and let that be enough. Sometimes people use this not for deep, dark, big things. Sometimes they just want it to be a regular part of their life. Um, I want to hear these words spoken over me. Um, and so I'm not coming because there's some monumental sin in my life. I'm really just coming because I want to hear the words of absolution. And if you think, well, that's weird, why would people invent sins? Um, Luther, this is his, this is kind of his uh, right of private absolution. 
And he writes that because this is exactly what the Roman Catholic Church forced him and a lot of other people to do. And I always love telling the story when I was a kid, um, my soccer team was, uh, I played for the Immaculate Heart of Mary. You can assume kind of what soccer team that was. Um, it was the Roman Catholic Church right down the street. They had the best soccer team in town. That's who I played with. Um, great guys. A lot of them I'm still friends with today. Uh, very few of them are actually Roman Catholic. Um, but anyway, uh, we, we had got done with practice or a game. I don't remember. It was some evening and, and we were all kind of walking from the field out to our parents' car. And uh, I remember uh, one of our teammates, he was almost to his car and he came running back to a group of three or four of my friends. And he said, hey, um, did you guys do anything bad at school today? And I was like, that's a really weird question to ask. And if I did, why would I tell you? Um, and he said, because I have to go to confession later and I don't have anything to confess. His point was, I have to go to confession and I have to say something. And as a nine-year-old boy, there probably was not a whole lot that was torturing his conscience at the moment. And so he wanted, was there anything you guys did that I can take the blame for so that I can check off the box of going to confession? He was willing to tarnish his own reputation to say that he went to confession, even for something he didn't do. Um, so Luther makes a point here to say, stop. This is not a box to be checked. Um, don't worry about trying to come up with something. Um, it's, it's actually very easy. To, if you turn the page at the end, the small catechism has a, has a great, um, the third, right? The third question of the catechism, how can we recognize these sins? This is what I should have told him if I had known my catechism better. Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, employer, employee? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you hurt anyone by word or deed? Have you been dishonest, careless, wasteful, or done other wrong? Um, that nine-year-old could have said yes to all of those things, as I could have. Um, so it's, it's, not a, it's not a difficult thing to do. And this is what, you know, reading through the penitential Psalms allows you to do. So um, uh, I come out, we, we kneel on the, the communion rail next to each other. We both face the altar. Um, and I invite uh, the person to begin. And this is what they say. Pastor, please hear my confession and pronounce forgiveness in accordance with God's will. I say, proceed. They go on with the confession. Um, and then, if you wish to confess specific sins that trouble you, continue as follows. What troubles me particularly is that, and then you might have, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what I did 20 years ago. Here's what I did 20 minutes ago, whatever it might be. But maybe you don't have anything specific, right? And that's fine as well. Um, then you conclude by saying, I'm sorry for all of this and ask for God's grace. I want to do better. Uh, I reply, God be merciful to you and strengthen your faith. The person says, amen. Uh, I stand up. I come around the communion rail. I, I stand to them face to face. And I ask them this question. And this is important. Do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? Do you believe that whatever is loosened on earth is loosened in heaven? That's what I'm asking, right? Do you believe that the keys that Jesus has given to me are valid here on earth and also in heaven? Yes. Let it be done for you as you believe. Yeah, you can't beat that, right? 
Then uh, I place my hands on the head of the penitent and I say, instead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I conclude with go in peace. Amen. And then I leave. Um, I do this, I do this vested. So I usually go into the sacristy and I, and I de-vest, unvest. I don't know what the proper term is, um, but I get back into my whatever clothes I'm wearing and I walk out of the chapel. And the point of it is to say, we don't finish. And then I'm looking for like small chit chat to have with you on the way out to your car. I want this to be the last of our conversation in that moment. That's what I want you to go home with. Okay. Um, so when it's done, we're done for that moment. Okay. Um, all right. Then uh, just try to wrap up. I know we're going a little late tonight, but I, I just had a little bit I wanted to finish. The, uh, the, the small catechism. I just, again, I want to look at the first part because I think this is so huge, right? This is really what separates confession within the Lutheran church to, to I think, uh, from confession in a lot of other Christian churches. First, what is confession? Luther says confession has two parts. The one is that we confess our sins. The other that we receive absolution or forgiveness from the confessor as from God himself. Not doubting, but firmly believing that our sins are thus forgiven before God in heaven. Uh, the confessor, this has always been strange to me too. The confessor is the one hearing the confession. Okay, that's the, that would be the pastor in that moment. Um, and then we, we kind of went through the other ones there too, um, in the private, uh, right. Okay, so here's our summary. Let's end there. God knows our spiritual needs well. He knows that we regularly struggle with sin, uh, that sin's guilt can plague our minds and hearts. That's why God announces his forgiveness to us in so many ways. In his word, in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, and in absolution. Absolution is simply the announcement of God's forgiveness to a repentant sinner. Confessing our sins and absolving one another is a regular part of the Christian life. God has given all Christians, both pastors and lay people, the power and privilege to absolve sinners. This absolution takes place in an informal way in our homes and with families. It can also take place in a formal way with our pastor and our churches. In either case, we know that the words of forgiveness that we speak are just as valid and true as if Jesus himself spoke those words to us. We know this is true because Christ gave us the command and the authority to absolve repentant sinners. All right. You and I have talked I'm involved in stuff in the back. I would work at seven o'clock in the morning and I'm into numbers and the whole day goes by and I think, God, you know, I, how many minutes did I give you for the last eight hours? Right. And yeah. I still struggle with it, but not to the degree that I used to because now when I come on Sundays, I lay that all out. That that's that's you know, I'm not looking for big sins that were years ago or whatever, just looking at what is it I've been living in now? And uh, it's pretty powerful to come here on Sunday morning, knowing that, yeah, I, there's a lot of neglect during the whole week. I hope God expects us to work in focus and do a good break now. I still feel, you know, I do get a break and uh, I still don't give you what he deserves. So, 
Yeah, we're, we're going to look at it in a future lesson, Peter. Um, and I know you brought up this before, and I hope I've said this before. Um, when you when you go through your eight hour workday and you say, well, God, I didn't think of you once how I failed you today. Um, your whole eight hours of work were given to the Lord. Vocation, 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 right? You, you do not serve God by thinking of God. You do not serve God by doing things for God as if God needed anything from you. You serve God by loving your neighbor. How do you love your neighbor at your job? You work hard. You work diligently. You don't steal time from your company. You don't take breaks when you're not supposed to. Um, you are a faithful, honest employee. And in doing so, God is loved and served. Um, this is the passage every single Sunday um, in our stewardship snapshot. And I wonder how many people actually read that on the bottom. Right, the passage there is that our whole lives are living sacrifices to God. Right? So I'll say it again. Sunday morning is not where we worship God. Sunday morning is where we come to be served by God with his means of grace. Sat Monday through Saturday, when you're out there in the world, is when you are worshiping God. And you worship him most clearly and probably most um, beautifully when you carry out your vocations. As a neighbor, as a roommate, as a friend, as a citizen, um, as an elder, all of those things, right? Those are all things that God says, Peter, I take those all for me. Even if you never thought of me while you were doing them, the whole reason why you are doing them is because of me, right? Yeah. It's a hard thing. Yeah, I know it is. But there's no reason to feel guilty about not thinking about God every five minutes, right? You've got a job to do. Um, and, and in doing that job, God is glorified. You are doing what he wants you to do in that moment, which is to love your neighbor by doing your job. You serve your employer. You serve your customer, you serve your fellow co-workers, and in doing so, by loving your neighbor, you serve and glorify and honor God. Yeah. Sunday, November 6th, we're going to have the man himself teach it to us. One hour. <laughs> I don't know how he's going to do it, but yeah, looking forward to it. All right, everybody, have a wonderful week, and uh, thanks for coming tonight. Look forward to seeing you next week. We'll talk to you later.